Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week on the show, we are talking with Grace Bonnie. You may know her as the creator of Design Sponge. She has also made a beautiful new book. It is called In the Company of Women. This book has inspiration and advice from over 100 makers, artists, and entrepreneurs. Really awesome ladies. Yes, it's all about ladies who are bosses. And speaking of ladies who are bosses, WBEZ has a new podcast out. It's a documentary about the making of The Oprah Show. And we'll hear about that later on in the show as well. But first, let's talk a little bit more about In the Company of Women. This is not only a beautiful book, but also a very insightful one. It's a big, heavy, almost coffee table sized (laughs) book. And it's full of portraits and conversations that Grace Bonney had with women who inspire her. So these range from people who are in the entertainment industry to doing creative work of almost any kind. There's folks like Roxanne Gay and Lizzo, Issa Rae, our friend Issa Rae from Insecure and Awkward Black Girl is in this book. Nico Case, who is a good nerd, is in this book. (laughs) Abby Jacobson from Broad City. So there's so many women at very different points in their careers and in very different fields, but all of them have had some sort of creative success that Grace Bonney is trying to get some wisdom from them about. Totally. What I think is so cool about this book also is that, you know, it's called In the Company of Women. It's about women who run businesses, but it's not like the boring business book. You know, this really is about where you draw inspiration. It's and not a what book that call... I would read is what you're saying. It's <laughs> yeah. not a management strategy book. Exactly. This is a book about inspiration and success and how failure is okay. It's, you know, there are just a lot of really beautiful takeaways where when you pay, even just paging through, you can see these beautiful big pullout quotes and you're like, oh my God, yes. I think it was knit actually... that on a pillow. <laughs> There's a lot of statements that I would like to knit on a pillow. Totally. And I buy think, on Etsy. I think it was Cameron Esposito actually who has a quote that I'm going to kind of malign now, but it was essentially like you have to just do a thing badly until you do it well. You know, and even that I think is just an empowering, lovely thing. And that's kind of what In the Company of Women is all about. So let's get right to our conversation with Grace Bonney of the beautiful website Design Sponge. We're talking with her about the beauty of creative messes, what we would do if we magically had just one more hour in each day, and that ever-elusive, perhaps folly of trying to find work-life balance thing that apparently we still do. Yeah, is that a thing? It's not a thing. Let's talk to Grace about it. So Grace... We really love In the Company of Women, I think, for a great many reasons. Like, when I was first paging through it, I was like, oh, no, this is too beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, I look at these workspaces and I see these women, like, owning the areas they're in. And it's just like, this might be more intimidating than actually inspiring. Is that something that you were worried about as you were making it? It's so funny. No. (laughs) Good. Good. I think I'm so used to working with interior spaces that that's sort of where my mind immediately goes to. And I thought a lot about the stories and what the women were saying. And I was hoping that those words would kind of counteract maybe the most beautiful of spaces. But 
Yeah, that wasn't a thought I had until now. Well, it's funny because <laughs> going through it, you definitely counteract the beauty of the spaces because so much of the questions that you're asking these different women is, what did you learn from failure? You know, what does your life look like when you're kind of at the bottom of the barrel looking up and trying to figure out how to get out of that? But yeah, I think, you know, it sort of reminds me of like the whole Instagram, like filter out the sad a little bit, you know, <laughs> just like, oh, no, my I'm not nearly organized enough for my workspace to look like that. I think we all have responded to that sort of like Instagram perfection yeah. in a way that's really unhealthy. And totally. I think for me, this book was very much about we have to embrace both sides of the pendulum because I think sometimes social media and even business books in general tend to be like this highlights reel. And I don't learn anything from that. Like I would much rather hear all the things that didn't go well and mm-hmm. how you picked yourself back up. And I feel like more businesses are launched when you realize that everyone's path is bumpy than if you feel like there's one way to do it and, you know, and it all is seamless. My desk is in the office considered one of the clean ones. <laughs> We're in a newsroom, so there's a lot of just piles of newspapers and FOIA requests and things around. But the surface next to my computer is pretty much always spotless. But as I remind people, Every single one of the drawers is a hole of chaos. Yeah, Trisha's <laughs> form of organization is really interesting where it's like, ostensibly, it looks really good. But once you start digging around, it's like, oh, no. It's like the duck on the surface <laughs> seems calm, paddling like mad underneath. I feel like that's a lot of us, right? Oh, oh that is me. I, my <laughs> wife could tell you, I basically, my life hides in tote bags. And so, Ooh. like, everything on the surface looks real spick and span. I mean, sometimes it's not honestly that spick and span, but it's a lot cleaner than all of a sudden if you go into, like, our bedroom or the entryway. And there's like 10 million tote bags that are just shoved (laughs) with like bills I need to pay and like random things I need to process. And so like once or twice a week, I have to just like dump them all out on the floor and go through them. I'm sure a therapist would have a field day with that. I love that. I feel like I do. It's the same thing, but piles. And it's like they're sort of arbitrary, but maybe like these are things that should be filed and these are things that probably could be recycled. But it's also just like all ends up in one pile in the end and then you just have to go through it. (laughs) <laughs> over and over. Yeah. We ran into that a lot when we were doing the interviews for the book. And I, I so enjoyed the moments when we went into somebody's studio and it was just a hot mess. <laughs> and they were like, I would apologize, but I'm not going to because this Good. is what it's yes. really like. And I was like, yes, thank you. I'm so glad to know that you also have like eight coffee mugs you haven't washed yet. And that's <laughs> totally OK. And it, I think that sort of humanizing process was really important because I naturally just tend to put people on pedestals and think like, oh, you know, Nikki Giovanni's never had a bad day in her life, which right. is just so ridiculous and untrue. And so for me, this was this process of like learning that every single person has a bad day, has a messy desk. We all have it. Grace, what about this project, talking to all these people, traveling around a lot of the time and actually seeing them in their physical spaces? What surprised you the most about what was happening in these spaces or the conversations you were having? One is silly and one is more serious. Um, The silliest one is that everyone had a dog, which as a a dog lover, I was very happy about. The last page of the book is this collage of everybody's studio dogs. Um, which my first book was primarily women as well, whether it was all home tours, and almost everyone had a cat. And my first note I got from my editor was there are entirely too many cats in this book. (laughs) So I kind of expected the same. And this time, like, everyone had huge dogs, and we just loved it. So that was really fun and exciting and random. But I think the biggest thing was that everybody had given up on the concept of work-life balance, and that expressed itself both vocally in interviews but also just in the fact that, like, there were people who had – just schmutz all over their offices or like dishes that hadn't been done or things that needed to be cleaned. And we all kind of were like, nope, that's that's what my space looks like. And it's totally okay. And I went into this book thinking I was going to get the secret to work-life balance. It really was like, <laughs> I'm at the end of this, I'm going to know everything there is to know. 
And then I spoke to so many women, especially older women, who were just like, why are you wasting your time on that? Like, there will mm. always be days where you aren't at work enough or you aren't at home enough or you just can't feel like you get any of those things right. And we all still feel that way because the idea of standing still and having this perfect balance, it, it can never happen because work is always moving forward. You're always moving forward. Your expectations are always growing. It's about embracing the movement. And as long as you're continuing to step forward – that's what you should be aiming for, not to stand still, because then nothing's happening. I heard, who was it? It was a TV producer, I think, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me yesterday. And he was super old. He was like 93. And he said his piece of advice for living so long was two words, over and next. And it's the power of recognizing when something is over and the importance of then going to next. And he said there's a hammock between those words. And if you exist there, then you are truly in the moment. And it was like, it totally blew my mind. And like, wait, wait, don't tell me it's a fine show, but like, it doesn't usually like blow (laughs) my mind, you know? But it was just like, wow. That's, that's, I love that. I thought it was really cool. I think that next is not something that we prioritize enough. Jodi Patterson, who's in the book, who Mm -hmm. just sold her beauty company and is now writing a memoir, has really embraced this pivot point concept of just, that's not a failure. It's not flakiness. It's just about embracing all the ways your life and your personality change. I really needed to hear that validated because as somebody who's done the same thing for the last 12 years, which I never expected to do, I've really struggled with how do I move on from a project that's been successful that in some ways has defined me a little too narrowly, but I've also let define me a little mm. narrowly. And and that's a scary thing to move on from and to try to imagine how you evolve past. And I think so often it seems as a bad decision because why would you ever move away from something that's successful, even if your passion isn't in 100% of that anymore? And I think for me, this book included so many examples of women that have changed careers three, four, or five times and never looked back. It was just like, cool, that was great. What's next? And seeing that over and over, I was like, Oh, that's exactly what I needed to see. And everyone's transition from project to project was totally different. Some were bumpy, some were smooth. It was just really important because I think it's just totally wacky to assume someone is going to be and want to do the same things that they wanted when they were 20, 30, 40, 50. Can you talk a little more about how you put together this group of women for the book? Because they really run the gamut in a lot of different ways. So what was sort of the rubric you were using if there was one that was formalized at all about like, okay, who's going to make it into this book? It's funny. There was a rubric I started with that was very much about inclusiveness and age. And I think especially as someone who is like an out queer person, really wanting to make sure that the LGBTQ spectrum was represented. And then that got applied to women of color and women with disabilities and just all the people that I felt are so rarely given voices, not only just in my like lifestyle community, but also in the world of business. And then when I started to collect those stories and those voices in the form of a list, basically, I realized that there also needed to be a diversity of stories and paths to business because a lot of the people that get press and get a lot of media attention do have very similar paths to businesses, whether it's family funding or venture capital money. And I wanted people to know that that's not the only way to get things done. So I really started to curate and edit based on how people got where they were and making sure that there were as many access points as possible because I wanted people to see there were people who were still working a side job and running their business or who were in their 70s and had changed careers three or four times because those are all totally valid and important paths to business. Yeah, you open the introduction of the book with a really lovely quote from an activist, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that really fulfills that notion too that ideally you can page through this book and find something that 
inspires or validates your own journey a little bit more than you might otherwise, you know? That visibility is, I mean, it's it's so simple, but it's such a powerful tool. And that quotation was from Marion Wright Edelman, and I just... It's always in the back of my head because when I came out publicly a few years ago, I remembered how important it was that I didn't have any role models and people that were out in my community because it really played a big part in me waiting so long. And then it obviously just clicked that I was like, wait, this is true of of everything. Like if you're a little girl in a wheelchair and you want to be a dancer, there's someone in this book who's done that and who's a choreographer who's also in a wheelchair. And I think the second that you see that's a possibility – your whole mind and your whole world opens up. And I wanted that to happen in as many different ways as possible. We talk about that a lot on the show when it comes to women in science, but it's true in almost every field that you really do need to be able to look to role models. And I think more so than ever before, people can seek those out and at least find examples of them somewhere online because when it was just your community, for a lot of folks, you know, their immediate family, if it wasn't their mother or their aunts or their school teachers, those were all the women that they were really exposed to in their life up through high school. And except for women on TV, and if women on TV are only this tiny subset of people too, to have things like this book or the ways that we can create community online now, I think are really offering that to so many more girls and boys to see the variety of what it means to be a grown up and what kind of jobs really exist. That's what's cool too, is just how many different jobs there are. Right. Like you can't just be a doctor, a lawyer or a, you know, whatever. It's like there's so many jobs that people in high school right now are like, oh, that's a thing I can do. That phrase like, oh, that's a thing. That's (laughs) that's something that's happened so much in the last year of this project was was talking to people and realizing they didn't even know they could be like a graphic designer or an architect or whatever it was, because they're just not traditional fields that are taught when you're younger. And that's understandable. And I get it. Like not every school has the facilities to teach graphic design to kids in public school. But it's incredibly difficult, especially for kids coming from sort of inner city communities. And they're just not being exposed to the wide range of artistic careers that exist. And this book really does focus on creative careers for a reason. And there's an incredible woman named Tina Shoulders who lives in Brooklyn, who I've known for a few years, who has this program called Exposure Camp. And she takes young teenagers into these jobs that they would not have been exposed to just to say like, hey, you can do this. This is awesome. Maybe you want to, maybe you don't, but you should know it exists. And that was always in the back of my head with this project of just thinking how important it is to show younger people, especially that all these careers exist or that you could just make your own. I love that you keep saying creative careers because there was definitely a sense in my community, not among my parents necessarily, but I know a lot of folks who grow up, especially if they're growing up a little more blue collar, the idea of creativity and having a career are seen as mutually exclusive, that you can either be creative or you can have a real job. And I love seeing all these examples, page after page, of people who are paying their rent and being creative. I think too often, and this is my experience, especially with people who go to art school and design school, is that those two things are kept so separate. I think every art school in America should force kids to go through as much business class education as they do fine art education, because just dumping somebody out into the world with a ton of creative talent, but absolutely no idea of how to like balance books or send invoices or how to price their work is just totally nuts. And I think all these women are, are really great examples of figuring it out. And they haven't all done it perfectly. It's taken a while to figure out. And some of them still struggle with how to price things, how I mean, the issue of how to charge what you're worth is something that comes up a lot, both yeah. in all the panel discussions we've done on the book tour so far and in the book itself, because I think women in particular struggle with this balance of knowing what you're worth, but also not wanting to upset people and mm-hmm. wanting wanting to be liked. And that that's something we keep talking about over and over again. And I don't think anybody has an answer yet, but it's 
It's a communal struggle. There was a presentation at a podcasting festival that Trisha and I went to in New York called Work It. It was for lady podcasters. And I can't remember who it was who said it, but she was up on this panel and she said, decide what you're worth and then ask for 30% more than that, which I just thought was so incredible. I mean, it was just one of those mind-blowing, like, oh, we can do that. Like, that's (laughs) totally okay. And then you may end up with exactly what you need. But if you start only asking for everything right. you really, really need, yeah. then you'll get less than you need. Yeah. yeah, I like that she said 30% more. And not. I feel like so often you hear like, what would a man ask for? And right, right. I don't like when things are made so binary like mm-hmm. that. I like when it's just, this is business. This is ask for what you want or ask for what you need. And then I do, I love a like ask high and, and come down a little bit because I think that's, that's fairly typical. And the amount of times I'm asked to do work for free and then just simply asking like, oh, do you have a budget for this project? And then you find out they do have a budget. They totally. just were trying to like lowball you. So, <laughs> So, you know, it's it's a frustrating process, but one that does get less stressful when you just get more experience with it. More with Grace Bonnie in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. Let's jump right back into our conversation with Design Sponge's Grace Bonney. So, Grace, we thought we would do something. I hope no one has done this with you yet, but it's possible they have. We thought we would turn the tables on you and ask you some of the questions that you asked people in the book. Sure. I don't know why that makes me nervous. But <laughs> I feel like I set it up and it really yeah. <laughs> Grace, get ready. <laughs> so, yeah, let's start with one of the questions that you often started with in the book. What did you want to do when you were a child? Mm. Uh, I wanted to run a newspaper. Oh, I cool. I was an only child, a very only child. And <laughs> my parents gave me an old typewriter as a gift at some point. And I remember writing like pretend stories and like piling up papers. And then I used to line up all my Barbies on our stairs. And each one was a level of an office. And oh, I would like wow. assign them papers. Wow. <laughs> so I feel like I forgot about that until I was working on this project. And I feel like it's kind of come full circle. Man, the creativity of only children is just like like the things you can do with a series of <laughs> dolls or stuffed animals is just really phenomenal. And before there were iPads. Yeah, yeah you know, I just <laughs> nagged my little brother. <laughs> Trisha, what did you want to be as a kid? At age five, I apparently wrote on a piece of paper that I wanted to be a clown, but I think it's just because I thought I had the hair for it. <laughs> I was about to, I, I wasn't going to say it, but I was thinking it. <laughs> That was at a point where my mother, who, bless her, she did not have the curly hair that came from my father's side, so she would just straight up brush my hair, and it just became this this clownish circle around my head. But that uh, was pretty nice. But pretty early on, I've wanted to do writing and journalism-y things also. I always was telling stories, whatever that was. Sometimes it was with a camera, sometimes it was... I got a little bit of money for an essay contest for resisting drugs and alcohol from yep. the Fraternal Order of Police or something <laughs> when I was in eighth grade. Trisha story. And so I, I both used the money to buy my first laptop and then also abstained from drugs and alcohol because I felt <laughs> beholden forever 
for this little bit of money I got for yeah, that essay. It's perfect. Yeah. They would be so happy to know that that worked. I know, right? <laughs> it's like the only time if it, it ever actually worked, turned out that like four hundred dollars was all it took to keep kids off drugs <laughs> and alcohol. Yeah, like all the way through college. Uh... <laughs> I love that you said a clown though, because almost every single woman answered something that had to do with performance, mm. which I found. And we honestly didn't even include that answer for most people because everyone said something so similar. It was like dancer, actor. Some people said like magicians. And, oh, that's good. And I thought about the fact that there is this connection between when you run a business, there's so much performance in that. There's so much like being the face of something. So I feel like in some way it all kind of came back around. So, Grace, if you were magically given more hours in the day. Mm. I like that you said magically within the construct <laughs> of the question because it is just like that's a magical notion. <laughs> but what would you do with the extra hours? First thing that comes to mind is sleep. Yeah. Um, I probably would sleep. <laughs> I would sleep or honestly, I'd walk more. Mm. I feel like walking has become like such a big part of my life. But I think that living in New York, there's so much pressure to like overachieve in every facet of your life. Like you can't work out. You have to work out at a boot camp and it has to be this really intense thing. Mm -hmm. And in January, I got diagnosed with type one diabetes, which is the one people associate with little kids. And it's such a game changer. And so I like sitting on my butt and working on a laptop and watching TV all day, which has been my pattern for 12 years just literally physically cannot happen anymore and so I, I have a hard time sometimes working in enough physical activity in the day because we can all get in that vortex of being behind a screen so I think if I had more time I would just take our dogs and cruise around for a bit yeah dogs the dogs are, are a perfect socially acceptable reason to just wander around too I think I use know? them as an excuse for everything they do totally. not deserve that <laughs> I use them as an excuse I'm like oh I have to go home dogs you know dogs yeah, yeah that is a nice one it's like no I yeah I gotta let my dog out guys yeah and I feel like people with kids are like roll their eyes and I'm like well, well that's, that's my version of that like, they can't what be inside show? oh it's Veep where he's got isn't it's a, a fake, fake dog, dog. Yeah. There's not, it's not actually a real dog at all yeah how long does he get away with that a while a while right? yeah, seasons. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> gotta go with the Does dog he have out. like a picture of it in his wallet? Yeah, totally. Like yeah, yeah. He, he goes for it. I want to know what you would do with hours, Trisha. Well, I have one of those Hermione Granger time turner necklaces at my desk because it's a thing that I think about every day. I think <laughs> I honestly that well, I'm also like obsessed with Doctor Who and time travel stories. It's like my one of my favorite things. But I don't know that. I think we all say sleep or like these things that are good for us, but I feel like technology has actually given us in some ways time back in our lives as a culture and like we don't use it necessarily for those things, right? Mm. Like I could use my phone to do a meditation app, but I'm playing some weird game instead. I don't know if I actually trust myself to be any better at more hours of the day. Time travel though, I'm extremely interested in. <laughs> <laughs> but one or two the more hours in the day, magic. I think, I think you know, maybe I could convince myself to actually learn Spanish again in that hour of the day. But would I? Would I really? I don't know. I wonder how much of it has to do with the idea of like, okay, this, these are your magic hours as opposed to like your same day just being longer. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and I guess we could just do this in our lives. Like, wow, this time is actually a real gift. And like, we could waste it or we could like sleep more or read more or... The really magical people to me are the ones who will do things like wake up at four or five in the morning so that they can spend an hour at the gym because they've created a magic hour basically when no right. one else is yeah. awake in their life. But it's instead of sleeping for that hour. And that's just such a high bar for me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go to bed an hour earlier, then it's fine. Yeah. But then, but yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying this isn't exactly what should be done. I'm just being honest and saying I might not be as magically productive with another hour. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I respect that. Would you just sleep? Would you read more? I don't know. 
I would probably read more. I think maybe if I looked at it as a magical hour, it would be my yoga hour. You know, I, I have been going to 6 a.m. yoga on Wednesdays, and it is like a little bit of a stretch in terms of getting up early, but it also feels really good and a little bit sick at the same time, you know? <laughs> it's sort of like I'll tell Trisha, I'll be like, I just did yoga. It was disgusting, but like also amazing. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe that's what I would do. Grace, Bonnie, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I'm curious what the rest of you, dear listeners, would do with an extra hour in the day. <laughs> and really, if you're going to do an extra hour of yoga in the day, like, that's on you, but really doesn't need to be at 6 a.m. <laughs> that is a fair question. It does feel extra efficient. But, you know, it is worth noting we recently had daylight savings time not that long ago. Maybe think about what you did with that hour. I definitely slept, for the record. But, yeah, let us know. Tweet at us. Send us an email. Tell us what you would do if you magically got an extra hour in the day. We are at Nerd App Podcast. In just a minute, some extra special homework this week from our friend and colleague, Jen White, who has a new podcast that we want you to listen to that involves her getting to sit down with Oprah. Yes, Oprah. Speaking of lady bosses. You guys, <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> That's in just a minute. All right, we are back with your homework for this week. Joining us now is Jen White. She is a host here at WBEZ, and we are super excited to talk with you about making Oprah. Hey, you Jen. Know, hi. You know, if you say super excited, you have to do it Oprah style. Come on, Greta. <laughs> help us. Help us. I'm super excited. It's like that. You have to go full, full bore with it. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So tell us about this project. What is Making Oprah about? So Making Oprah is not about the creation of Oprah as a human being. Uh-huh. She uh, clearly has, uh, we weren't involved in that process, okay. but it's about the creation of the show and the history of the show. And and where it started in 1986 and where it ended up 25 years later. Because I think when we think about the Oprah Winfrey show, we have a pretty clear definition of what it is in our heads. Mm-hmm. But the evolution of the show was pretty extensive, actually. And if you look at it over the course of those 25 years, there's a lot of different turns and missteps and redirections they took to end up where they did. And it's a it's a pretty fascinating story. So how confident do you think Oprah was in the possibility of her own success? Well, if you talk to her now, which I did. <laughs> uh, Dropping a name there. <laughs> the I ultimate mention, name drop. Did oh, I yeah. mention I talked to Oprah Winfrey? I'm just saying. Um, she was sure about her move to Chicago. It mm-hmm. felt like a meeting with destiny. And that's how she talks about it. But over the course of the show... And you hear this in different episodes of the podcast. There were moments in the show when Mm -hmm. she questioned what she was doing and questioned how the platform was being used. So that's an interesting turn a little later on. You got to meet Oprah, which is incredible. And we definitely want to talk with you about that in a minute. But first, let's listen to a clip. This is from the first episode. Can you help us set this up a little bit, Jen? Sure. So we're going to hear Dennis Swanson, who was the station manager at WLS. It's where Oprah got her start in Chicago. He hired her to the show that would eventually become the Oprah Winfrey Show. We'll also hear Debbie DeMeo, who is one of the executive producers of the program. Hi there. My name is Oprah Winfrey. 
Oprah, spelled O-P-R-A-A. Dennis wasn't really that impressed by the audition tape, but Debbie's endorsement convinced him to fly Oprah in for an in-person audition. He brought her in on a Saturday, brought in a crew, put her on set, and staged a mock AM Chicago show. How did she do? Oh, my goodness. I'm sitting in my office watching this audition, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, Dennis, you can't be this lucky. This woman is unbelievable. Oprah was such a natural in front of the camera that it was all Dennis needed to see. He invited her upstairs to his office and offered her the job. Finally, she said to me, she said, do you have any concerns? And I said, no, not that I can think of. And she says, well, you know, I'm black. I said, well, I think I have that figured out. So I said, we're over that hurdle. She says, you know, I'm overweight. And I said, well, so am I, and so are many Americans. I said, here's the deal. If we get this thing worked out, I don't want you to change a thing. I don't want a new hairdo. I don't want a weight loss. But I said, now that I think about it, I do have a concern. And she sat back in her chair, and she said, what would that be? I said, well, I've seen people in this business push their success right up their nose. I want to make sure that you can handle success. And she said to me, she said, do you really think I could be that successful? I said, well, this will probably cost me some money when I deal with your agent, but I think you're going to shoot the lights out. I said, I don't know that you'll know how successful you're going to be. So I remember that day pacing back and forth as if, I don't know, we were in a maternity ward almost. (laughs) And I remember she went straight to Dennis's office and we went back to our office and we waited and we waited, and we waited, and we heard the elevator doors open. We heard her yelling, whooping it up, <laughs> running down the hall with her high heels over her head, and we looked at each other. Yep, we've got game. Ah, so good. Yay, so exciting. She's so interesting <laughs> to hear, just in that little bit of the audition tape even, that she's got to explain her name, whereas now Oprah is a very understood and everyone knows how to pronounce it sort of name but at the time she was like I know that this is unusual Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nobody knows who I am I'm 27 years old I'm trying to get a job it's just so fascinating to hear how it started yeah yeah 27 that's she was young she was young and it was you know when you think about the media landscape at that point she didn't fit any mode for for what she was getting involved in her previous job was in Baltimore and she was on a talk show where her co-host was a white male and he, oh gosh, I have to say this out loud. When she was allowed to speak, he would touch her on the leg. Oh my God. That was her signal for being able to, to speak on the show. And when you think about that and you think about Oprah who, you know, has a television network Mm -hmm. now, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to reconcile those two those two experiences of her. It's That's hard. incredible. Mm-hmm. So let's listen to a little clip of you talking with Oprah or of Oprah talking during her conversation with you. So the, the Oprah effect, being able to get people to respond to things in a, in, in a commercial kind of way, meaning buying things, does not compare to the daily impact and the shift that occurred in the way women in particular saw themselves. This shift in consciousness that happened, led by the teachings, information, and connection that was offered on a daily basis on The Oprah Show, cannot be measured. Hey! Hey. (laughs) 
That sounds hyperbolic, but it's really not. You cannot measure the full effect of Oprah. And and, and if, when you see people today, for she was on the Ellen DeGeneres show when we were there, and we were watching from the dressing room we were in, and Ellen introduces her here with us now. It's Oprah Winfrey, and she comes out. There were people in the audience crying yeah, yeah. and screaming and crying. She had this really in, in, powerful impact, I think, on women in particular. There are men who, who love Oprah, too, of course, but there was something about seeing a woman in that position of power and control that that shifted things. I really think it shifted things and, and shifted what we thought was possible, you know, especially in media. And so for me growing up and watching her over those 25 years as I was, you know, in school, starting my career, my mom was always like, you can do that. You've got the gift of gab, you know, (laughs) that was my model. It was one of my primary models for the work I do today. So being able to look at the show and its evolution and talk to her and hear her experience of it, definitely one of my, one of the highlights of my career thus far. So your homework is to listen to Making Oprah. You can find it at wbez.org slash Oprah. That's O-P-R-A-H. Jen, thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. That's it for this week. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dussault and Justin Bull. Our intern is Annie Nguyen. Our executive producer is Oprah Winfrey. Just kidding. It's Joel Meyer. <laughs> you got they me. They have a lot in common. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. What are they? They're all, they're both pretty fabulous. I'll they give are them that. both really fabulous. <laughs> is he going to give me a car? <laughs> we get a car? No. <laughs> I mean, if Oprah was our EP, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Do us a favor and subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on NPR One. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Special thanks to <laughs> Raja528 for the five stars on iTunes. Yes. Those five stars help get the good word out about Nerdette. And uh, I love that this Raja review referenced the Raja side-eye from the Issa Rae episode. Yes. Raja being the sidekick to Jasmine, her pet tiger, who gives the best side-eye of any Disney character, I would say. And it's also a pretty great camp nickname. So thanks, Raja528, for that. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast in all of the places. And we have a newsletter that we would love it if you subscribe to. It tells you what's coming up on the show next week. It gives you a little bit of extra homework, some links and cool things that we're finding around the interwebs. Check that out. Find it at nerdettepodcast.com. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find all sorts of podcasts for nerds of all stripes, including Oprah Nerds. Oprah Nerds. Check it out, wbez.org. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. <laughs> That's so great. I was about to say, could we get Oprah to, to track that for us? But you just... You get homework and you <laughs> get homework and you get homework. <sighs> <laughs> That'll do it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.